Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. On this week's episode of Indie Matters, I talk with Nevada Independent editor John Ralston and reporter Riley Snyder about the upcoming special legislative session and just how legislators plan on legislating in the midst of several major crises. After that, reporter Michelle Rendells calls up the president and CEO of the Nevada Bankers Association to talk about mortgage forbearance as an option for homeowners dealing with financial stress during these troubling economic times. And at the end of the show, Joey and our reporter Jackie Valley talk about her days as a student journalist. But before we hear from our guests on the show today, here are a few numbers regarding the coronavirus. As of recording this podcast on Thursday, June 25th, the number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Nevada are nearing 15,000, and 495 people have died. The broader test positivity rate, or the rate at which new coronavirus tests return positive results, has continued a sharp climb since the state began its reopening process last month. As it surged above 10% this week for the first time since early May, Governor Steve Sisolak moved to mandate mask wearing in public spaces. Reported recoveries, meanwhile, exceed 10,300 statewide, and the number of people tested in the state now totals more than 254,000. For more on the coronavirus, including our new comprehensive data page, head to thenevadaindependent.com. Normally, it's a full two years between Nevada's legislative sessions, with most of the governing in between handled by the governor and interim committees. But amid unprecedented economic damage from coronavirus shutdowns and simmering civil unrest over police violence, the state's 63 legislators are heading back to Carson City for what many see as an urgently needed special session. Here to break down what that session will look like are Nevada Independent reporter Riley Snyder and editor John Ralston. Guys, thanks for joining me. Hi, Jacob. Hey, Jacob. So uh, I want to get to the policy considerations here in a second, but I think a big concern and a concern that's actually delayed the start date of this special session is the actual logistics of convening the legislature in the middle of a pandemic. So Riley, you were at the legislative building and you got a look at how staff is preparing the space. Uh, What changes did you see? Yeah, well, we uh, toured the building on Friday and there are a lot of things still kind of up in the air that they're trying to decide. A lot of those decisions will be made closer to whenever a special session is called. They said it's going to happen in early July. Um, But there are some pretty significant changes happening. They have um, a lot of hand sanitizer and masks available. They're going to be asking everyone who goes into the building to wear a mask. They're installing um, these like plexiglass sheets between um, seats in the state Senate um, as like the buttons to vote and microphones are very close to each other. So they're doing that to ensure um, social distancing. They've taken down these big glass panels that are usually in the assembly chambers. and they're going to kind of space people out and have them a little bit back further to ensure that everyone is six feet apart. They're going to stop using caucus rooms. So there's a lot of thought going into this. They're trying, I think, really hard to ensure that they're going to be able to, um, you know, ensure uh, everyone's safety. Carson City hasn't had a ton of uh, COVID cases. I think we're like at 25 in the, the state's capital. But the issue, of course, is that you're going to have lobbyists coming in from Las Vegas, a lot of legislators from Las Vegas. So they definitely want to, like, take every precaution um, possible, given that you're going to have a lot of people inside a kind of enclosed small space for hopefully two or three days, but maybe more, depending on how things turn out. Right. And we should say, just for comparison's point, uh, uh, that there are a lot of people involved in a legislative session. It's not just the legislators. Can you give people a ballpark of how many people would normally be in the building for one of these things? 
It's hard to say just because every special session is different. Every legislative session is different. I was um, trying to think of like how many people on average are probably going through these doors every single day. It just kind of depends on like what's going on. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of lobbyists, especially if uh, the legislature gets more um, into topics outside of just the budget area. So it's going to be in the, in the hundreds. One, um, I guess, upside is that during special sessions, uh, they don't hire like attaches or staff for individual legislators so that, you know, we'll cut down on at least 63 people who would usually be there during a normal legislative session, but there's going to be quite a few. Um, and that, that's part of the, the issue is that, you know, buildings are supposed to uh, comply with this like 50% fire code occupancy or don't have gatherings of more than 50 people. And so they don't really know what's going to happen or what to expect. So I think that's also why they're trying to have kind of like a suite of options, depending on how many people are, they think are going to show up. Mm. And so there's quite a few legislative sessions between the two of you, I mean, especially you, John. So is there any kind of precedent for, for the kind of special session that we're going to see in the next couple of weeks here? Well, they, they've had special sessions for budget reasons before, but they've never had a special session uh, in the middle of a pandemic and where all the, uh, uh, things that Riley just described are going on. And by the way, we should mention that people should also, while they should read Riley's story, they should also check out the great video that our, our colleague Joey Lovato produced uh, as he as he toured the, the building with Riley to show some of what they're trying to do. I really don't know how this is going to work. I, I, Riley used the word hundreds to describe, you know, the people that go in and out of that building during a regular session or even a quote unquote normal special session. And Joey has a great shot of actually a, 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 a crowded hallway uh, there. The problem with special sessions, Jacob, is even if they're narrowly focused, and this one will probably be focused on the budget and police reform and maybe some election uh, bills that the Democrats uh, want to do is that lobbyists will, will generally convince their employers, oh, I need to be up there just in case they try to do anything to us as either an excuse to go to Carson City or an excuse to make more money off of their clients. And I don't know how much of that uh, there, there, there is going to be uh, this time, but I would guess it's going to be pretty crowded up there. Okay. So now I want to get to those policy considerations that we've been mentioning. And so first, I want to start with that budget. So the state's looking at a massive revenue hole for both fiscal year 2020 and 2021. Um, can you give listeners a sense of first, how big those holes are, and then uh, what legislators and the governor are looking at doing in order to sort of stem the bleeding here? Um, yeah, you're putting me on the spot, Jacob. So if I'm wrong, please direct all emails to Jacob. Um, but the current fiscal year uh, budget hole, I think, is around 800 uh, million dollars out of like a 4.4 billion dollar budget and then for the upcoming fiscal year fiscal years um, run from July 1st to the end of June so ours will end in just a couple days now so the next fiscal year's revenue hole is supposed to be around I think like 1.2 billion dollars is the number that I've heard or seen the most again this is all fluid it depends on like tax revenue which comes in at different dates so it's substantial like it's up to 10 15 20 percent of what was legislatively approved Nevada has a balanced budget uh, requirement in its constitution, so legislators essentially have to rewrite the budget. Um, they've already done this for the current fiscal year, FY uh, 2020, which is the year ending at the end of uh, this June. They've done this through tapping into the rainy day fund, which is about $400 million. They um, have a variety of agency budget cuts and a couple of other um, things. They're, tap they're tapping into federal CARES Act money, which helps cover some costs. So they think that they're good. Um, for this year, but the next year is going to be the hard part because 
Um, you know, it's kind of hard to find $450 million in, you know, couch cushions. Um, so that's going to be kind of the big conversation around the special session is what they're going to cut and what's going to change for the next fiscal year. And we should say, too, so much of this is coming from the fact that revenues tanked during the shutdowns. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the strip was shut down and so much of the state's revenue comes from gaming. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a sales tax, gaming percentage tax. Um, So a significant amount of traffic. You can read, I think Michelle's story got into it, but like visitation to Las Vegas was down 97% in the month of April. Um, So it's just absolutely cratered uh, our state's tax revenue. And so, John, I want to ask you quickly, uh, what kind of precedent there is for these kinds of cuts and these budget crises of the past? Is there any is there anything we can look to as a guide for what might happen in the next uh, couple weeks here? Well, there have been cuts before. And of course, there were cuts during the Great Recession, the session after that. I, I think it was either 09 or 11. I, I forget which. And there may have been cuts uh, in both of those sessions. Uh, that were pretty severe, but n- we've never seen anything uh, like this. And as Riley mentioned, he mentioned those huge numbers. Even if it's just 800 million out of a 4.4 billion dollar budget, that's a huge amount for, for for the for the budget. And as Riley also pointed out, that depends on a lot of different assumptions that we don't know if they're going to be true. That does not assume that uh, we're, we're going to have to retrench again. And as we're uh, um, taping this podcast, cases are going up. Uh, in Nevada, we don't know what restrictions might might come back into place and 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 further hurt revenues. And uh, I I just there are going to be a lot of different ideas. I would guess, uh, Jacob, uh, on on how they cut. And one thing they always try to do in special sessions, and by they I, I generally mean governors, is they want it to be a fait accompli. The governor has tremendous power to, to, to call the agenda and not have it go beyond that agenda unless the governor himself decides to amend the so-called call of the special session. Uh, but as narrowly focused as they want this to be and as in, in the hopes that they have a majority uh, of Democrats who control both houses signed on, there are things are going to go wrong. Uh, there are going to be proposals made that we haven't heard about uh, yet. And, and there's never been one special session, I keep saying this, that has gone according to plan. And I can't imagine uh, that this one can, even though I hope Riley's right, that it's only a couple of days. I, I, I'd be surprised if that's all it lasts. Hmm. So I want to get into it. I mean, you mentioned that nothing goes to plan. So right now on the docket, maybe is some police reform. Um, and this comes obviously after weeks of civil unrest, um, these anti-racist protests, uh, protesting police violence. And we've seen specifically um, a lot of push and pull in Nevada, both in Reno and in Las Vegas. Is there a sense yet of what that police reform is going to look like if it happens at all? And uh, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll answer it, but it won't be an answer a lot of people listening will like. I don't know. Uh, I, I think that uh, the danger of trying to do a broad police reform or criminal justice uh, reform uh, during a, what is a relatively short uh, special session, you're going to get a really, really bad result. And you're going to have all kinds of people saying, this is what we have to do right now. And, 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 and it'll be interesting to see what the governor's willing to sign off on. One interesting dynamic that, go, that, 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 that's going to go on with this is who runs both of those caucuses. Uh, and, and, and what their backgrounds are, especially Nicole Canizaro, who is a prosecutor and, and uh, is, is a person who may not accept a lot of different things that both her caucus and Democrats in the assembly uh, have. You know, Republicans aren't going to have much voice in this, 
uh, Jacob, because they just uh, they don't have very many people up there. But I think that the visions within the Democratic caucuses are going to be interesting to watch. Really quick, um, one thing sure. that Assembly Speaker Jason Frierson has brought up is uh, a bill he passed last session um, requiring the state's uh, it's the post office, which is confusing, has nothing to do with mail. It's peace officer standard and training, um, requiring them to do de-escalation training, racial bias training, a, a couple of other things. The bill was written very loosely, and uh, the post, uh, like executive branch, again, nothing to do with mail. This is uh, police training. They said that we are going to basically not promulgate any um, new or expanded regulations or requirements. We'll check in with you at the end of 2020 to see if you're doing this. And the, the speaker was very upset. He sent a very long statement saying, like, we feel like this is not at all what we uh, were asking for. We were trying to give you some latitude on this. Um, interestingly, interestingly enough, the Post executive director testified against the bill. So that was kind of a weird dynamic there. But if they do take up anything, I think that would probably be one thing they want to tighten up. Um, Assemblywoman Danielle Monroe Moreno was also at a press conference with uh, Frierson and Governor Sisolak a couple of weeks ago, and she brought up, um, I think it was like mental health training for police officers, like in addition to a, a regularly scheduled physical, you would also do like a mental health screening. So I think things like that would probably be more likely than anything else, probably higher on the wish list for uh, criminal justice reform advocates. Mm. And we should say there's been a lot of discussion nationwide about defunding or abolishing police departments, but that's not something that the legislature could do because the, that funding comes from local governments. Is that correct? They uh, they actually last session, um, and I feel like I'm going to get this wrong, and there's going to be like one person who emails me and is really upset about it, but they um, passed an extension of uh, the increased more cop sales tax, I think like out into mid-2020 or maybe 2030. Um, so that that's one thing, more cops is for hiring more police officers. It was a sales tax increase that um, the legislature authorized the Clark County Commission to increase. It's like one of the ways to get around raising taxes and the two thirds revenue requirement. So like if they wanted to, I don't think they're going to, that would be like an area they could approach it. But you are right that that funding does come from uh, local government. So it's not something the legislature could like, you know, really take up outside of something like that. Okay. Well, well, we'll leave it there for now. Riley Snyder, he'll be at the special session uh, when it starts in, in July with uh, our reporter, Michelle Rendells, and John Ralston, editor of the Nevada Independent. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. And now on to Michelle Rendell's discussion with Phyllis Gergovich, the president and CEO of the Nevada Bankers Association about mortgage forbearance. So I guess I just wanted to briefly touch on mortgage forbearance. It seems like it's a little bit of a different situation than just the eviction moratorium. You kind of have to reach out to your banker. It's kind of a different model. Can you explain a little bit about what mortgage forbearance entails? Sure. Yeah. First off, it, it, if, if someone is in need of forbearance and, and they haven't yet asked for, asked or worked with their lender, recognize that there's no need to pay fees, there's no need to use a third party, it's just a simple phone call to make the request. You know, paperwork or forms required, hmm. just make that request, that's the most important thing that a borrower can do. And, and what a forbearance is, is it's a temporary stop or reduction in your debt obligation to help you through a temporary financial crisis. Hmm. So it's not a dismissal of any debt, it's not a, a renegotiation of any or it's just putting that pause button on 
while you reassess your situation and, and have time to focus on health and other needs. We've heard the number 90 days in, in the context of mortgage forbearance quite a bit. I think we're getting very close to 90 days since the governor talked about the eviction moratorium and, and mentioned the mortgage forbearance. So is there are, are there options for folks beyond just 90 days? Absolutely. That 90 days is the typical initial, let's get back together, see how your situation is sort of time frame. If the loan is a Fannie Freddie or government-backed loan, and that represents the, the vast majority of loans in Nevada, then, then that loan is eligible for up to 12 months of forbearance, actually. It, it, you'll, you'll keep checking back in. It'll come in 60 and 90 day increments, depending on your situation as a borrower and, and your situation in terms of return to work. Uh, and then it is extendable. Okay. What about for folks, I've, I've just heard in passing a couple people mention that it was hard to get in touch with their actual bank. You know, maybe maybe they're not quite staffed up or maybe they're getting a lot of calls. But what advice do you have for people who are have been maybe up to this point unable to reach a real operator at their bank? For, for most folks, you're able to do this with a phone call. And keep in mind that, that banks, like every other employer, have, have challenges. They've had to have as many of their folks that get situated to work from home. So... Like every other call center, it's going. It, it could take a while, but it is just a phone call. You don't have to have any paperwork. Um, if you know your your details, that's great. If you know your budget, that's helpful. But to make the request, it is just that phone call. And many lenders have and mortgage servicers have also set up um, an online request, and so you can check out their website, um, acknowledging that call times are going to be a little longer might want to check out the lender or mortgage servicers website as well. And then there was this recent lending tree survey that really found that I think it was about a quarter of people that have a mortgage of sought out forbearance, but really only a, you know, a fraction, maybe 5% or so have said that it's something they absolutely needed. What do you read into those findings? Well, it, it, it's an interesting statistic. It was a really interesting question for, for lending tree to ask and you know it's the user it's the borrower reporting their situation so I, I think that at the time and thinking you know pro- proactively no one really knew what was what was ahead no one has their had a pandemic playbook no one knew what was happening or how bad it was going to get or how long it would last so some of those questions still do remain, but as, as we kind of start to turn the corner or when we do start to turn the corner, it, it will be interesting to see what position people are in when they do, like you said, hit that 90 days and it's, and it's time to call your lender and talk about your situation. Have you guys been in any sort of discussions, you know, with the governor, with the attorney general, talking about what happens to borrowers and renters? You know, in a couple of weeks, when some of these directives are lifted, when some of the eviction moratorium is gone, do you fear sort of a fiscal cliff for folks in coming weeks? I'm not certain that 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 there's a hard stop in line, you know, in, in place for everyone. At, as borrowers do have the option to extend that forbearance up to a year, 
So I think that it, it seems that because it, this is this is a health crisis with financial impact that's causing some disruption to the housing market, but this is not being driven by housing. The housing issues are, are a symptom. We've heard that there will be some who have had a permanent change, and I, I would anticipate that those come kind of on a flow basis as well. Because of the prior crisis, which was more housing-driven, I think that we're in a, in, in, a, in a better condition to handle this stress. At the time, Senator, now A.G. Ford, was very engaged, led much of the state work federally. There were very specific protections and processes that came out and that mm. work. And so we know what works. We know that those efforts and those practices are all still in effect, mm-hmm. and the lenders and servicers will be able to scale up and down as needed. Mm-hmm. The pain and chaos of perfecting any new system happened with the last mm. crisis. And so while we got slowed in the industry and completely stalled in some cases, we should be able to, the, the industry should be able to respond. So it sounds like you're saying that maybe we won't see a foreclosure crisis like what we did see. And I guess it was the peak of it was 2011. If things remain trending the way that they are, we've seen that you know it, it's, it's a little bit of a different landscape this time with homeowners. The, the vast majority of homeowners have, have equity in their property, which was not the case last time around. And so that, that adds a different color to it. Anything else that you wanted to add about how the banks are, are dealing with this and, and any other things that borrowers should know? Yeah, I will just circle back to anyone who has not missed a payment and they fear they may, or if they've missed payments and haven't been able to engage with their lender. Don't be afraid of that conversation. Don't fear that conversation. The lender is there to, to help the borrower get through this financial stress. Homeowner retention is the number one key, and your lender is in the best position to to assist, and there's no fee for that. There's also HUD counselors available, and HUD makes those counselors available at no charge, and you can find a borrowers can find a list of that at hud.gov, All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Phyllis. I think this is really great information. All right, and so we are at the last segment of the podcast, and I am joined by our reporter, Jackie Valley. Jackie, how's it going? Hello. It's going well. How are you? I'm good. And boy, I think I feel like you haven't been on the podcast in, uh, in a minute. <laughs> it has been a minute. But you, you mainly cover you know, education, and now you've picked up this, this kind of this new beat, gaming. Mm-hmm. But you know, a lot of us here at the Indie got our starts in student journalism, and we talked to Jacob last week about being the editor-in-chief of the college newspaper at UNR. Did you, did you work in high school or your college papers at all? Yeah, I did both. You know, I moved in high school, so I worked, but I worked at the high school papers in both of my schools. And then I, I honestly started working for my college newspaper at Kent State before I had even moved into my dorm room (laughs) (laughs) because we had staff meetings. So I, that was really my introduction to campus life was attending the daily Kent Stater meetings. And so I had a whole list of assignments before I even like saw what my dorm room looked like. Yeah, I always describe it as somewhat of a co-ed fraternity because everyone's yeah. so close. I mean, you the bonds are just incredible. In fact, I think it was in April, the 
the hard lockdown here. We, we did a 10 year reunion over Zoom with about a dozen of us from the, <laughs> the college newspaper, which was really fun. Oh, that's really sweet. So did you, did you report on anything in particular um, at the Kent State or were you just kind of a general beat reporter? Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I covered the university administration for a while. And so some of those were, quite frankly, the wonky, could be a little bit boring stories about <laughs> university president and those type of decisions. But nonetheless, right. it was important and it taught me a lot about how to interview people. Oh, yeah. That. yeah. But yeah, it was fun. I mean, you just, I, I definitely learned more as a student journalist than I did in any of my classes. And I think anyone who was in student media can tell you that you probably skipped a fair amount of classes to be able to go cover things or be in the newsroom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I definitely remember like thinking in college, like I'm not writing enough stories. And then I start volunteering for the paper and I'm like, oh, this is where you actually like do the work. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I mean, we had when I was in college, the 2008 election. And so Ohio was a big battleground state. So mm-hmm. it was John McCain and Barack Obama and their VP choices in and out of the state all the time. So we covered all that stuff, all the their appearances in and around mm-hmm. the Cleveland Akron area, which was fun. And then we had a huge post-election night party in <laughs> 2008. <laughs> so yeah. you've been you've been covering uh, politics a lot longer than uh, than some of us here at the Indy. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's one way to look at it. Do you have any stories of like any crazy breaking news stories that you you broke in your during your college days or anything like that? Yeah, I, I mean the the biggest one that probably comes to mind was in the spring of 2009. There was always an annual block party, like on any college campus. Usually there's some sort of a college fest, you know, a, a street with student housing and such. So there was a, a party in the spring. And the thing you have to know about Kent State, if you don't already, is that May 4th, 1970 is when four students got shot and killed by the, the National Guard in protest, Vietnam protests. And so yeah. it's always a, a touchy thing on campus. And in 2009, there were, there were other parties like this going across across the country with campuses where it was just getting a little rowdy. And, and so p- the police that year were just very gung-ho about shutting these college parties down, I guess you could say. And so it was like almost before this one even got started, they were advancing down College Avenue. And part of it, you know, there was a party. Obviously, people were drinking, spilling out in the streets, uh, music, and then, you know, one or two students had the great idea to set a couch on fire, which didn't go over well with the police. And then they (laughs) advanced further, but then they started shooting rubber bullets. And as you can imagine on a university that had this tragedy at that point, 40 years earlier, you know, it wasn't, wasn't the greatest look and it made national news and it was like a heavy police presence. And so that night in particular was an interesting reporting experience because I remember being in the newsroom because I was one of the editors at that point, just, mapping out everything we wanted to do on a whiteboard and then we were all across the city planning the the front page the headline the photo so that was I guess my real immersion in what at the time was a a big news story on a college campus you know unfortunately had national (laughs) coverage as well yeah that's really interesting actually because I mean you can totally relate that to today right with with kind of you know some people seeing police is overstepping their boundaries with the protests and everything going on right now and so you know, you can definitely yeah, draw some and, parallels. And there definitely was always tension between the, the Kent Police Department and students. It's probably like that to a certain extent at every college campus. I think Kent was an outlier in that respect. But, you know, both sides didn't really do a lot to help themselves in that situation. 
And, you know, at the end of the day, I think the argument could be made that was tear gas and rubber bullets really necessary for essentially a college party. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting uh, introduction into reporting like that, on the ground reporting and, and stuff like that. <laughs> I, I think my favorite part of the whole thing in the aftermath was someone created these t-shirts, a student was creating them and selling them, and it said, we didn't start the, the fire, dot, 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 just the party. <laughs> and it kind of summed up the whole situation because there were, you know, like hundreds of students there and by and large just having a good time. And then it just escalated quickly. Yeah. Well, thanks for telling us your story, Jackie. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. And thanks to Phyllis Gergovich, Michelle Rindels, Riley Snyder, Jackie Valley, and John Ralston for being on the show this week. If you like what you heard, you can find us on our website or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Make sure to leave us a rating and review there as well. And of course, if you have comments, criticism, praise, or want to suggest a podcast segment, you can email us at jacob at theenvyindy.com or joey at theenvyindy.com. People with Bodies wrote our original theme song, and you can find more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.